You are now listening to the Do Something Good Today podcast brought to you by Everybody's Juice, a podcast reminding you to do something good today for your body, mind, or soul. Are you having trouble sleeping, fatigue, and low energy getting the best of you every day? From time to time, it's good to give your body a rest from the stresses of everyday life. We can't control everything, but we can control what we put in our mouths. You might want to try Juice Cleanse from Everybody's Juice, offering three, five, and seven-day juice cleanses with organic fruit and vegetables. A cleanse from Everybody's Juice is a good way to give your digestive system a break so your body can heal and repair itself quickly. Feed yourself pure nutrition that your body can absorb immediately. Help your liver and kidneys detoxify your body. Give your body what it needs to slim down and have more energy. Participating in a cleanse helps you break old, bad food habits such as eating out of boredom, eating too much junk food, etc. By going on a juice cleanse, you give yourself the opportunity to start fresh and reset your body. All our cleanses come with a guide that prepares you before, during, and after the cleanse. If it's your first time, we know that the thought of a cleanse can be a little intimidating. Our cleanse program is designed so that the during is just as enjoyable as the after. Each juice in our cleanse is specifically created to nourish the body while flushing out toxins. Whether you are a newbie, amateur, or pro, give it a try and your body will love you for it. Go to everybodysjuice.com and use code EJUICE20 to take $20 off your first juice cleanse. We are back with another episode of the Do Something Go Today podcast brought to you by Everybody's Juice. We're here with Dr. Alexis Parcells. Uh, Dr. Parcells is a plastic surgeon who's passionate about advocating for women's health and empowerment. Uh, She specializes in everything ranging from tummy tucks to Botox to liposuctions to breast reduction, uh, just to name a few. So, Dr. Parcells, thank you for coming on. I truly appreciate your time. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem. So, I mean, let's get right into it. I mean, and you're a Hoya as well. I'm a, I'm a Hoya myself. Uh, so I, I wanted to make sure I get that special shout out in. Um, but why did you choose to specialize in plastic surgery? So I initially got interested in plastic surgery from my experience uh, working with Operation Smile, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on cleft lip and palate repair. And I started going on um, medical missions with them to Kenya and Vietnam, Peru. And um, the more I, the more time I spent with them, the, I was just so inspired by their mission, which is to um, change the world one smile at a time. Um, And I was really drawn to plastic surgery because of the ability to make a very visible change in such a small period of time. Um, a cleft lip repair is 45 minutes and it changes a child's life or an adult's life if they've been living with their cleft and it changes their family's life because a lot of them are no longer ostracized from their communities. And um, it was just um, so inspiring that I um, started pursuing a career in medicine and eventually got into plastic surgery um, with the goal of going on medical missions and helping as well. So, I mean, during your, your course of being a plastic surgeon, what are the most common cases that you come across in general? So I tend to focus the majority of my practice. Um, I'm a community-based plastic surgeon, so I own my own practice, and I practice in New Jersey. 
And I tend to do a lot of procedures that are focused specifically on women's health. So I do a lot of breast reductions. I do breast reconstruction for breast cancer patients. And then I do some cosmetic procedures as well, such as uh, breast lifts, uh, mommy makeovers after pregnancies, um, some liposuction, and labiaplasty is also very big in my practice. Okay. Now, can you talk about like some of the most common challenges that come with being a plastic surgeon because I'm pretty sure you come across some things that are miracles, so to speak. So I wanted to know, like, what is the most challenging thing about being a plastic surgeon? Oh, it's just a good question. Um, I think for me, um, it's, it's important to understand why someone is trying to make that change for themselves and making sure that they're in a good mental space for the change um, because surgery is a partnership. It's not like a routine dental cleaning. Um, we we really like to make meaningful change for uh, the patients in our community. So just trying to make sure that uh, each person that's coming to see me is a good candidate and has realistic expectations of what their outcomes um, are going to be and that our goals are aligned in making that change. Um, and I, I find that those patients who are the most compliant and who are pursuing surgery for the right reasons tend to be the happiest patients. So just trying to find that good partnership with a, a patient who um, is on the same page as what we're trying to accomplish for them. So how do you determine like what's a good candidate for plastic surgery is like, you know, previous medical conditions wrapped into like prioritizing who's not and who is? Absolutely. A lot of people um, want plastic surgery and they may be a good candidate for plastic surgery, but it may not be the right time in their life for plastic surgery. So it's important to understand what their um, motivations are from a psychological perspective, to understand who their support system is, who's going to be helping them through their healing journey, um, if they've had previous surgical experiences, um, what those experiences have been. Um, it's elective. So what I do is not a life-saving surgery. So I want my patients to be in good mental and physical condition, um, have their diabetes well controlled if they have it, um, non-smokers, um, you know, just just of, of the right um, mental and physical mindset for, for a procedure because it is a controlled trauma. Surgery is a controlled trauma and your body has to be able to heal itself. And so it's important that we um, do a lot of screening with our patients to make sure that both mentally and physically their body can recover properly from the procedure. Okay. Wise, you know, as you spoke about the challenges, can you speak about, you know, the rewarding aspect of being in this profession as well? Absolutely. I think that plastic surgery is one of the um, last great fields of, of general surgery. It's really, it's, it's, it's still an invasive field in, in the sense that uh, we don't do that many laparoscopic or robotic procedures. We're, we're making physical change on people's bodies. And so um, from a reward standpoint, uh, patients that come in and who say to me, you know, you've, you've literally changed my life. Like I was unable to exercise because my breasts were so large that I was having neck, shoulder and back pain and I couldn't find clothing to wear. And um, I just was really sensitive and self-conscious about the way that I looked and felt. And now I just have this literal, um, you know, relief from not having that tissue on my body anymore. And I have so much more confidence and I can shop in regular stores and buy, um, you know, a bra off the shelf. I don't have to have something manufactured. I mean, that it just, it's really, really wonderful to be able to help um, women, um, you know, with that particular uh, concern and condition. 
And likewise, with my, my breast reconstruction patients, uh, you know, they're given this diagnosis of breast cancer and, and it's, it can be very scary and it requires a lot of treatments. Um, some women require chemotherapy or radiation and they have, they require mastectomies. And so to be able to be on the positive end of that and say, you know, you're, you're going through something really difficult, but, um, my job is to give, to help build a beautiful breasts for you. And, um, you know, give you um, a, a wonderful outcome and, and to the point where you get up in the morning and you glance in the mirror and you're not reminded of of the journey um, and everything you've had to go through, but rather you just really do feel whole again. That's, uh, for me, is very satisfying and um, is one of the best parts of my job. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, has there ever been a time where a patient is coming in and, you know, they're adamant about getting a specific surgery, but you're advising against it? How does that process really work? Because, okay, yeah, please share. How does that process work? Um, so, yeah, so I think that just because someone's not a candidate today doesn't mean that they're going to be a candidate down the line. I try and tease out um, if I don't think they're a good candidate, why I don't think they are. And I like to be honest and open um, because I want people to get there if that's something that they really want in their lives. But, um, you know, there might be obstacles, whether it's, um, you know, you you need to lose some weight before we do a procedure because you're at high risk of an anesthesia complication or your support system isn't really intact. And we con- were concerned that your expectations aren't aligned with what we um, you know, feel is going to be a, a good outcome for you. Um, you. We have to hone in on on your expectations on what's realistic and what's not realistic. And oftentimes Instagram and filters and social media can play into what is realistic and what's not realistic. So there is a big education piece that mm-hmm. goes into it. So just because someone isn't necessarily a candidate the day they walk into my office doesn't mean that they're never going to be a candidate. It's just important to gauge um, how they're prioritizing their health, how they're prioritizing this procedure, and um, and how to get them to the place where they would be healthy enough to have the procedure um, mentally and physically. But yeah, all the time we'll have patients come in, and I always say to them, the, the girls that work in my office, um, you're just as much of a part of it as I am, and so we have to all go through screenings um, with the patients and listen to them when they're you know calling us or sending us an email or a text message to understand know, how they're feeling and, um, you know, what their intentions are. And if anyone sees a red flag, you know, we need to further investigate that to make sure that they will have the best possible outcome and the best possible journey um, that they're, you know, ultimately want to sign up for. Now, I know that most of plastic surgery is considered cosmetic, right? So that means that insurance companies don't usually front the bill for this, correct? So that's not true. Um, I, I trained um, in the New Jersey Rutgers, um, Rutgers system, and I spent a lot of my training um, in Newark at um, the university hospital there. And the majority of plastic surgery that I did at that institution is reconstruction. So when we think about plastic surgery, most people are thinking of the Kardashians or, um, you know, the bachelor or the housewives. Um, but really, um, when when we talk about uh, what the, the breadth of plastic surgery, that includes hand surgery. It includes craniofacial surgery, so um, fractures of the of the face, motor vehicle collisions, um, face transplants um, came on the wow. horizon about five years ago. Um, in terms of cleft lip and palates, children that are born with different syndromes where their skulls are misshapen or they have a cleft lip or palate repair. Um, children who are born with extra digits. Um, 
uh, like I was saying, breast reductions, uh, any type of cancer reconstruction. So someone that has tongue cancer may have part of their arm or their leg transplanted in to uh, reconstruct their tongue or part of their um, leg bone to reconstruct part of their jaw. Um, uh, any sort of um, wound healing complication or wound healing development is usually uh, treated by a plastic surgeon. Burn reconstruction is plastic surgery. So um, there's this misconception that plastic surgery is cosmetic surgery, but it really isn't. The majority of plastic surgery is, uh, you know, at least 50% is reconstructive based. And insurance covers all of that. Yeah, insurance covers all of That's that. That's interesting because I feel like we, I mean, and I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad we're having this conversation because, I mean, the majority of the people, when you look at plastic surgery, is more so cosmetics. It's more so, you yeah. know, getting a breast reduction, getting butt implants, you know, Botox, things like that. Yes. That's glamorized by the by the media. Yeah. Right. Yes. So do you, do you feel like... As far as the, the industry and the role that it plays, do you think that social media has put like a bigger stamp on people wanting to get these cosmetic surgeries? Yeah, I mean, I think people like to follow beauty and wellness trends. And so it a, a lot of people, and, and we all age similarly in the sense that as a, a woman, you're going to develop breasts during puberty, and then you're going to go on and possibly have children and over long periods of time and the effects of gravity, your breasts are going to drop, you know, are going to sag. And so it's, it's a natural part of aging. And so there are a lot of these cosmetic procedures in plastic surgery that are popular because everyone experiences the aging process. Whereas, you know, not everyone is going to know what it's like to suffer from a burn injury or undergo a hand trauma or, know a child who needs, um, you know, a congenital um, surgery to their face. So I just, I think because these procedures are so common and they're so visual, they tend to get a lot more traction than the, the breadth of plastic surgery, which tends to be more reconstructive. Um, but to me, it's, it's just as, if not more fascinating to, um, to treat these patients as well. And um, they are some of the most grateful and compliant and, um, just wonderful people um, because you are dramatically impacting their lives by um, that re through the reconstructive process. Okay. So how well are plastic surgeons compensated? Because it seems like a very intuitive process. So you, I mean, you're pretty much reconfiguring someone's face or their body parts or something like that. And it takes like a lot of work, it seems like. So is this a, a is it a yeah. lucrative field? as opposed to like, you know, a heart surgeon or, you know, a neurosurgeon? This really depends on where you practice in the country and the type of practice you belong to. So uh, people that go into plastic surgery are some of the most kind and um, generous people that I know. Um, and it just depends what you want out of the field. A lot of people uh, who go into plastic surgery, they, they want to spend some part of their profession treating underserved individuals, and that may not be lucrative, but you may be able to balance it out um, with some other things that you can offer in your practice. Um, we go through the same negotiations uh, that other physicians go through with insurance companies. Some plastic surgeons are employed by hospitals. Some are part of a, a, a multi-specialty group where they're um, working with other types of doctors and some are in private practice. So it really just depends on what your interest is in, specifically in plastic surgery, where in the country you live and the type of work that you do. So an, an academic or someone that works for a big hospital system, plastic surgeon who's teaching residents and publishing research and going to conferences, 
is going to be compensated very differently than someone who might be in a multi-specialty group or in a group um, uh, or in private practice by themselves. But uh, in terms of lucrative, I mean, you could define that as what do you find personally rewarding? Do you find the connection with your patients and and with the the tr- people you're training, the medical students that you're training and the people that you're speaking to to be rewarding? Or is it all you know financially based? So it's a hard question to answer. Okay, understood. Someone who's just getting into the industry, is it recommended to you know go directly into like private practice, or should you move into you know getting the experience with working at, at a hospital? Or for your instance, you work with the school, like the school's hospital, Rutgers University. So yeah, so in order to become a, a plastic surgeon, you have to. Um, finish four years of college and then it's medical school is four years. And then depending on the training, it's anywhere from six to eight years or more of just plastic surgery training. Um, and so you're not to get that at a hospital or it's through through an accredited, uh, training program. So there's the, um, ACGME is the accredited, um, institution that oversees all the different types of residencies, whether it's cardiology or pedi- uh, pediatrics or OBGYN or plastic surgery. So you match into the field, meaning you go on interviews and you express your intent to want to train there. And then you make a, a list of your favorite places. And then all of the institutions make a list of their favorite candidates. And then some computer up in the sky matches everybody. I mean, it's, it's basically an algorithm that gets plugged in and then you complete training at that institution um, for anywhere from six to eight years. And then after that, in order to be board certified in plastic surgery, you have to undergo multiple rigorous tests throughout the course of your training. You sit for one written examination, and then you also submit um, a year's worth of cases of patients that you've operated on to the American Board of Plastic Surgery, and then they select several cases and you usually fly out to Arizona and you sit for three days and they really ask you intense um, questions on these cases and then also just on generic cases and decide if they feel you're confident enough to be board certified. So it's a very rigorous process to, to obtain that certification. Um, and during that training, you're trying to figure out, well, who are your mentors? What fields are you interested in? Do you consider yourself to be more of a private practice type of doctor? Or you want to be you know, employed by an institution. You don't want to worry about running your own business. You'd rather be paid a salary. So you're, you're sort of trying to ask yourself those questions and make those decisions while you're in your training and then setting yourself up for a position when you graduate. A very tedious process, yes. to say the yes. least. So I mean, what, what truly kept you motivated throughout this? Because it seems like almost <laughs> 20 years I mean, it's, it's four years of schooling, four years of, you know, medical school. Then you have to have your, you know, your training, yeah. for, which you said is six to yes. eight years. So, I mean, we're practically talking about almost 20 yeah. years of school yes. before you can even really start, yes. uh, you know, practicing in your yes. career. So I'm interested to know what kept you motivated throughout this entire process. Um, I mean, I, 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 I really enjoy being in the operating room and solving complex problems. Um Plastic surgery is different than other specialties where, um, so my husband's an orthopedic surgeon. So if you want to learn how to do a joint replacement, you follow steps one through 10 and you can read about it in a textbook and there's a little bit of nuance, but plastic surgery, the training is very different. It's a, it's a philosophy of principles. So you know that, um, you can do X, but you can't do Y. And so you're given all of these different sets of principles and then you can apply them to whatever problem you're trying to fix. So it's interesting. You can 
we would we would have these conferences where we would pre- present a patient and their problem and and whatever they looked like, and then you would go around the room and there would be ten different ways to solve the problem. Um, and so that's what the discussion is. So it, it is a very, I mean, I found it very stimulating. I found it very exciting. I love to operate. Um, I love to be able to enact positive change um, and empower people to make great changes um, in their lives. So uh, that was very motivating for me. And um, I got to train with really wonderful people, my colleagues who are now, you know, we all keep in touch and we're good friends and um, we help each other still when we have challenging cases. So um, it just was a very rewarding experience. And um you know, you kind of just get it, you just get into it. And then before you know it, your second year, third year, you're just kind of working your way up until it's time to graduate. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I do, I do want to bring up, there is a difference between a cosmetic surgeon and a plastic surgeon. And a lot of people don't know this, but in order to be a plastic surgeon, you have to go through this rigorous process in order to be a cosmetic surgeon. Um, you don't have to go through this. And there's a, there's a big misconception that all cosmetic surgeons are plastic surgeons, but cosmetic surgeons can be anesthesiologists, they can be radiologists, they can be OBGYNs, they can be primary care doctors. It's just someone who wants to take a weekend course and then decide to offer this procedure. And it's not necessarily illegal, but it's frowned upon, um, you know, if you don't have the proper qualifications. So I always say to patients or prospective patients, if you're going to invest the time, money and energy to have a plastic surgery procedure, make sure you find a board certified plastic surgeon and not a cosmetic surgeon because there is a big difference in the amount and intensity and complexity of training. Wow. Okay. So I'm kind of glad you brought that up because the topic that I want to discuss is centered around like BBL, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is like very popularized within the culture right now. Like it's it's like everyone is flying out of the country to get this specific surgery and some are backfiring, you know, some, you know, are, you know, having a lot of health issues yeah. after getting this particular surgery. So when that type of surgery is done, I'm guessing that is not done by a plastic surgeon. That is a cosmetic surgeon, correct? So it can be. I mean, um, the New York Times just wrote a, wrote a big article about about um, what's going on down in um, Florida and Miami. Can you explain what a BBL is sure. for yeah. the audience so they can truly understand yeah. so it? so a okay. BBL is a Brazilian butt lift. And um, I don't believe the procedure was invented in Brazil, but it culturally represents, um, I didn't come up with the name, but the whole idea is that it represents this <laughs> round, um, round butt yeah. um, that is common, I guess, in, in Brazilian culture. Um, and so the whole idea is that you're gonna have, you're gonna liposuction or suck the fat out of one area of the body. And while the patient's asleep, you're gonna process the fat using processing te- techniques in the operating room. And then you're gonna re-inject the fat into a patient's butt- buttocks. Um, the problem with the procedure is that there is a very high risk of complications, um, and the complications can be, um, devastating. Um, I believe that the risk of death is one in 13,000. Um, and the reason is that we have really important, um, blood vessels in our, in our butt, um, the gluteal artery and the gluteal vein, the arteries delivering the nutrition to that area and the vein draining the nutrition. And what can happen during the procedure is that if you're not properly injecting um, either the right amount or in the right location, um, Mm -hmm. you can basically overstuff the area with fat. And that creates a um, a, a really high-pressure environment, which can lead to compartment syndrome, meaning that the muscles um, can get um, destroyed. Um, 
the, the pressure is too high in there and it can actually strangle the muscles. Uh, if you have dents or um, if you have um, tears in the vein, the fat can get sucked up into the vein and then that can drop into your lungs and call, cause what's called a pulmonary embolism and that could be deathly. Um, and that's and then you have infections. You have non-sterile technique where patients are at risk for um, all sorts of infections. So, um, and then a lot of patients will stay there for a couple of days and then they fly back to wherever they live and then uh, they'll have a complication and they can't get in touch with the, the person that performed the procedure. So uh, it becomes very complicated for the emergency room doctors to take care of and the local plastic surgeons to take care of because um, we don't necessarily know what was done and how much fat was injected and patients are given, given very limited information. So a lot of clinics have recently popped up with the ongoing trend. A lot of the physicians are not board certified plastic surgeons. There are some good board certified plastic surgeons who do very high volumes, but they can be more expensive than someone who advertises as a cosmetic surgeon and has you know, very limited training. And um, that's where patients are really at highest risk. That's what I was going to ask you, because it seems like, you know, this type, this specific type of surgery is, is solely just being done out the country. I mean, you hear about women getting it done. They're always flying down south to South America. Are there specific surgeons that are doing this surgery in the United States? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I, I know a lot of colleagues that do do this procedure as safely as they possibly can, but they're expensive. So a lot of people just want the, you know, medical uh, tourism is very big. A lot of people are reading online. They get excited about this adventure and the cost savings. Um, and uh, it can be very scary. You know, it's, it's your body. So um, I always say, <laughs> you know, you get what you pay for. I mean, if you really want this procedure, then you should go and see someone who does very high volume you should make sure they're board certified. You should ask to see specific befores and afters that are their own because people can take pictures anywhere from Instagram and claim them as their own or from the internet. Um, and then you should ask to speak to recent patients of the practice who have gone through the procedure. And if they can't give you those four basic things that they're not, that they're board certified, that they have their own befores and afters, um, that you can read real patient reviews and talk to recent patients of their practice, you know, then then that's not the right person for you. Um, you want to be able to be in as safe a position as possible. And you also should be signing consent forms saying you understand the risks involved and that they're worth it for you. Very educational. Thank you for providing that tidbit. Yeah. So I'll, this leads to my next question. Have you ever had to clear up, you know, a back surgery from previous surgeon? And how does that process work? Because, I mean, not only do you have to clear the mess up, but you have to clear the mess up and create something new as well. Yeah, I mean, it's really situational dependent. Um, we certainly did a lot of that in training, and I've done that in practice as well. Um, it, it gets to be, um, it's an emotional roller coaster for the patient, and it can be confusing as the provider because you don't have all the pieces. You're trying to put the pieces together. But ultimately, you want the patient to be in as safe a situation as possible. So if there's an infection, over COVID, I had a woman who went to Brazil and got um uh, breast, breast implants and she just wasn't healing properly. Um, she ended up in my office and it turns out she had a rampant COVID infection and she was having delayed mm. wound healing and her implant was exposed, which really puts her at risk for sepsis or an, an infection so bad that the, uh, that the uh, uh, bacteria goes into the bloodstream. Um, and so I had to take her to the operating room, wash everything out, take the implant out and then um, get her completely healed before I go back in and then 
try and um, you know reconstruct the, uh, the the defect or the cosmetic deformity that's occurred because of the complication. So, the, you know, one of the principles in medicine is to do no harm. So the first thing you need to do is is try and get the patient into the safest position possible, and then cosmetics takes a back a backhand to that um, once uh, once once they're at least back to, you know, their regular activities of daily living, then you can address the cosmetic concerns. But, you know, when, when a complication occurs, you just have to get them back to their health as quickly as possible. And sometimes that, that means you have to forfeit their cosmetic outcome temporarily. And it can be costly. Understood. It can be costly. Mm-hmm. Understood. So when, some, when a woman is getting a breast implant, what exactly is the material that's going inside? Because for years we used to hear about, you know, silicone, but is that still a thing that's being used? Because that, that was something that was spoke about 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, technology has transformed, you know, plus and plus over and over again. So is that still the case now? Like, what's the actual material nowadays? It's You know, I pose that question to my implant manufacturers all the time. I say, why do we still only have silicone? You know, we've had implants on the market since the 1960s. So um, I do put implants in. I do take implants out. All my patients get the same conversations about implant safety. Um, and then they have to decide what, you know, what's going to be best for their body. But basically, when you look at the history of breast implants, they came on the market in the 1960s and the 1970s, and there was no FDA Medical Devices Act at that time, and so there were no safety studies that were required. And the first-generation silicone implants that were put into patients were a very thin shell of silicone and a very gooey gel, and so there were very high rates of rupture. And so what we saw in the 1980s and the 1990s was a lot of class action lawsuits. Patients and physicians were concerned that their implants could be causing health conditions, the FDA Medical Devices Act finally came out in the 80s and they reclassified silicone gel and they actually took silicone off the market from 1992 to 2006 to study safety. Um, however, uh, the only option at that time was saline implants, but saline is still made with a silicone shell. So mm. there's salt water on the inside, but it's still silicone on the outside. So from 1992 to 2006, unless you were part of a clinical trial, you had a saline device placed. And those are not perfect devices either. They have their own um, complication profiles. Um, In 2006, the uh, FDA looked at all the studies and looked at our society and said that they couldn't find any association between silicone gel and any connective tissue or autoimmune or any health diseases. So they put them back on the market. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Facebook started coming out, Instagram started coming out. And so now we see these groups of women who believe that their implants are making them sick and they identify as having something called breast implant illness. So there's 35 million women who have implants these groups are about 150 to 200,000 women. So I believe there's definitely something going on, but we just don't have enough good science and good data yet to really understand why some women are affected and other women are not affected. And it's not an official medical diagnosis yet. So I do see these patients in my practice and we make them undergo a full medical workup and we tell them, you know, you may have a cosmetic deformity because the goal of our procedure is to take out that implant and the scar tissue that surrounds it. And we hope that you feel better, but we don't make any guarantees. Um, So I do both. I put them in and I take them out. But everybody understands that, you know, it's 2022. I say it's it's very similar to going to a car manufacturer and deciding what type of car you want to purchase. All of the parts are currently on warranty. They're currently on label. The FDA currently approves of this. But if something changes, we would notify you. Or if you don't feel well, it's your, you know, you have to come back and see us and we can monitor you. So that's kind of where we are with implant technology. That's interesting. So you said the parts that are implanted in them is on warranty. So if something yeah. goes wrong with that. 
yes, that's yes. interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow, I didn't know that. Okay, so the typical breast surgery, breast implant, like what? How much does that look like? Price from a price really varies. It very much varies. Um, again, it it depends on um, where in the country you are, um, how much experience your surgeon has. Um, you know, just uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it. The the market is very different in California than it is in Miami, um, than it is in uh, New York City. Okay. So very variable, yeah. Okay. And it, and included in the cost is uh, not only the surgical fee, like my fee, but the cost of the implant devices themselves, as well as the facility, the surgery center that you're having it done, and anesthesia. So there's, there's usually four parts that are included with the quotation. Mm, okay. So what changes do you see taking place in the medicine and plastic surgery realm? Do you think that, you know, there will be any, you know, groundbreaking, you know, findings in the next couple of years? Do you think robots, I mean, I don't want to put this out there, but like, do you think robots or like artificial intelligence will have a factor inside of the, the plastic surgery field? Yeah, I mean, we use um, we. There are some technology systems that are used in offices to tr- try and predict um, the before and after, what your after results going to look like. Um, I think that technology will certainly get more sophisticated. Um, I think COVID's gone a long way in the way that we communicate with our patients. I think telemedicine's become a lot more um, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it to be really helpful communicating with patients. A lot of patients don't want to come in for you know routine things that we can do over the phone. So, or over, um, you know, a, a, like a zoom type of portal patient portal. So, um, I think more advances will just help make care more accessible to people. And, um, I think that, you know, with the, um, advent of social media and as it continues, it's lowering the barrier in terms of, um, uh, patients uh, having hesitancy or feeling guilty about wanting to make improvements um, in their body. Whereas my patients who are from an older generation, there's a lot of guilt that goes around wanting to have a procedure done. Our younger generation, they equate it to, you know, um, part of the self-care uh, regimen. And so they um, prioritize their health and their looks um, and are willing to spend uh, more to obtain that look versus someone who's an older generation um, without hesitation. You know, they just, they, they, think of it more as, you know, this is me taking care of myself and a, a part of a maintenance versus, um, you know, a splurge or something that you shouldn't talk about or, or, you know, is done in secrecy. They're much more open about it. And so I think those types of, um, changes are going to help drive our field to discover more exciting things that we can offer our patients. Now, before we wrap up, I want to discuss Botox. That's something that's been around mm-hmm. for many, many, many years. I mean, yes. for me, I've always wanted to understand, like, what exactly is it? Because, I mean, you see Botox, you'll see, like, the induction of, like, bigger lips. But then sometimes you'll see people have, like, you know, bigger cheekbones. So are there... So, more- yeah, so... I'm so- yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So, um, so Botox and filler are two totally different things. Botox is a neuromodulator, meaning that it is going to paralyze certain muscles in your face. So when we talk about Botox, we're usually talking about injecting the medicine in the forehead um, in between the brows and around the eyes. And what that's going to do is it's going to stop certain muscles from moving and it'll help get rid of um, lines that you see at rest and around your eyes as well. Um, filler is hyaluronic acid, which our body naturally makes. It's it's a volumizer. Mm-hmm. Um, it provides volume underneath uh, that bottom layer of our skin. But as we get older, we don't make as much of it and we break it down faster. 
And so when we talk about filler, we're talking about hyaluronic acid. And so we'll often use that in the cheek area or in the lip area to add volume or augment um, facial structures. Okay. Got it. So when you talk about Botox, what is the general purpose for someone who may want to get that? Because that's a, that's a process that I never quite understood, like the purpose of it. Is it just to look younger or to you know, remove you know wrinkles, yes. reduce wrinkles, things like that? Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, we there's the concept of baby Botox where women in their late 20s and early 30s will start by just doing a little bit to prevent those lines from even forming. And then a lot of women in their 30s and 40s are doing it to uh, correct the wrinkles that they currently have. And is this a process that has to continuously be done throughout the yes. course of a lifetime? Okay. Yes. So what happens if someone stops? The muscle is starts it? working again. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's a safe it's a safe drug. It's been on the market for 20 years. It's one of the most valuable drugs on the market. Um, and uh, it's the gold standard for neurotoxin. So, okay. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it's, it. uh, but I don't recommend it in pregnancy or breastfeeding. And why is that? Um, just because. I mean, there's been no report saying that it shouldn't be done, but um, just as out of an abundance Cautious. of caution, I just say to my patients, not not a great time. Just wait till you're done. Okay. And before we wrap up, I have one last question. How do we become good doctors? And I think that, you know, we talk about the medical field and this, I mean, this may not, I mean, this, this could probably, you know, work in your field as well, but a lot of women especially are saying that they feel unheard when they go to their doctors, whether, you know, it's a GI doctor or, you know, Mm -hmm. oncologist, whatever it is. I mean, it's still the medical field. So even if it's reconstructive, you still need to be heard. You still need to be felt. So what do you think can be done to continue to advance that and promote that within the medical field? I think uh, taking the time to listen to patients, um, is really important. Um, and I think the constraints that have been placed on physicians have limited their ability to take that time. Um, you know, the, the hospital systems want physicians to see a certain number of patients and perform a certain number of tasks and just the document chart documentation, um, for reimbursement, all of that has taken away from the physician patient relationship. And so, um, I always say to patients that you will find the right physician for you. You may just need to do a little bit of digging, but don't be afraid to get a second consultation. Make sure you find someone that you trust, especially with virtual health. You know, you may they may be out of state. There may be, you know, you may have to travel to have them do a procedure, but there's no reason why you can't have a virtual preoperative, you know, or a consultation with them. Just find the person that understands, you know, what you're going through and what you're looking for. Um, and you can connect with because surgery especially is a partnership, like I said earlier, and you want to make sure that for your best result, you're doing your part and that you trust your surgeon is doing their part um, and that you feel comfortable expressing your concerns. You don't feel, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many women come into our practice and say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have allowed that surgery to happen. I should have spoke up. I feel, I didn't feel like I was being heard. Um, so, you know, you have to do your due diligence and you will find someone who, um, who you can trust and, and who is going to help you get from, you know, stage A to stage B. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, Dr. Alexis Parcells. Thank you so much, Doc. Can you provide, like, your website, sure. social media, YouTube channels, any way anybody can get in contact with you and stay in contact with you? Absolutely. My my uh, website is Alexis Parcells MD, and my Instagram handle is at Alexis Parcells MD.
thank you so much for having me on. Not a problem. That is the Do Something Good Today podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. I love you all, and we are out.